Welcome to A History of the Inca. An interview with Pete Casey. Hello everyone and welcome once again to A History of the Inca. I am your host, Nick Mashinsky. I have sort of a surprise for all of you. Not that it was planned or anything, it just sort of came up, but I think it is unexpected and exciting nonetheless. I had the privilege to interview Pete Casey, a man who just walked across South America east to west. Pete traversed the Amazon rainforest in search of the source of the Amazon River, or one of the sources of it, Nevado Mizmi which he reached on May 16th of this year, 2022. Six years, five months, and 12 days from when he first began his journey. Pete loses track of the date in the interview, but let's not worry about that because it is on his blog, ascentoftheamazon.com, where he cataloged his entire journey, and I encourage you to check it out. You can find the links in the description of this episode. And don't worry, we do discuss the Inca a bit, because reaching the source of the Amazon River isn't enough. No, Pete later reaches the Pacific Ocean. I found out about Pete's journey on Twitter earlier this spring, very late in his adventure, but I must say I found his updates extremely interesting and the journey nothing short of incredible. Still in Peru at the time of the interview, Cusco, as a matter of fact, Pete and I were able to connect, and I interviewed him over the phone. A word of warning, the audio is not the best. It is a mixture of interviewing over the phone, Cusco's internet, and my lack of experience recording while using WhatsApp for the call. I did my best to bring out Pete's voice and limit the background noise on both ends, but I'll be the first to admit I'm no phenomenal audio engineer. The interview certainly stretched my editing skills when it comes to audio, but I feel like it got the job done. Just know that any noise that you do hear doesn't last too long. Also, there is a section where the audio just stopped recording. Fortunately, I was taking notes, and I will be able to fill in a bit of what was not captured. Without further ado, here is the interview. Enjoy. So I'm here today with Pete Casey. He is uh, from Sussex, England, or the UK. But he's just completed his trek across South America, ascending the Amazon to its highest source, and then down to the Pacific Ocean afterwards. Pete, welcome onto the podcast. Thank you, Nicholas. Good to uh, chat. My first ever podcast. Yeah, well, welcome. I'm glad uh, glad that you're on. Glad that you're safe. And well, let's. Let's uh, start from the beginning. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Right. Um, yes. Obviously, I wasn't familiar with the adventure industry before I started. Not too familiar. I'm, I, I'm from Sussex in the UK. Um, 
I'm middle-aged. <laughs> I don't really want to say my age, if you don't mind. What's your profession or, or background in? Right, um, yes, I'm in the construction industry. Um, I trained as a, a bricklayer, but I eventually learned most of the trades, have the ability to construct complete houses and extensions and buildings and landscaping. So I'm jack of all, master of none, but I, I guess um, with 25 years experience, um, I'm pretty good at most most sides of the, the building industry, yes, I'm pretty sure. I, I don't like to stick to one trade, you know, I'm curious to learn new things all the time. I guess that's part of my reason why I decided to do this. And um, yeah, um, I sort of started training to be an architect when in the evenings at college, but I couldn't stand sitting in an office, you know, and also obviously working in the building trade. You're very tired after work, and um, so I, I passed a few exams and um, decided to continue working outside. So um, yeah, I enjoy being outside. So there's an insight into my character there, I guess. You know, you're you're essentially you know an explorer now. You did something no one that we know of has currently accomplished, and we often see, at least I guess in possibly recent history, explorers with some military background, guys maybe, or guys or women, living on the edge. And But you state in your blog, ascentoftheamazon.com, that you don't have any sort of particular experience in terms of military or, or sports or anything like that. So how did you get into um, gaining those skills for a journey like this? Amazon and Andes, um, and um, I never really knew of the adventure community um, from the town I came from, you know. I followed a few people doing adventurous things, and I decided to go to London and meet up with some of these people and see some, a few events, and it sort of got under my skin a bit, and I thought, well, you know, there's more to life than just working your life away, paying for a mortgage, and, you know, um, and, uh, I, by pure chance, a friend walked the first three months with Ed Stafford on his Amazon journey. And I got in touch with him, uh, just to chat and say congratulations, all sorts. And um, after he left the expedition, I, I volunteered to bring a load of um, kit out for Ed Stafford. And on the, on the um, promise that I could walk for a few weeks with them. <laughs> and that worked out nicely. It all worked out well. And, you know, I got, I got the taste of adventure, I guess. And um, a few years following that, you know, I I had an idea and I did a bit of research. Basically, I was planning to walk the Nile, to be honest with you. It was the first um, project I was working on. <laughs> but someone beat me to that. Um, I, ha I didn't have the sponsors or the money. So I thought, well, you know, my plan B, you know, I have I have some experience in the Amazon already. This sounds like it could work if I could do a sea to source expedition of the Amazons. And I, I, I did try to get sponsors, but um, I realized my social status didn't really, um, I don't think people would believe I could have possibly achieved. And I guess um, the only way to do it was to sell my home. 
and um, once I'd done that, you know, the money was in the bank. I thought also I had enough. <laughs> I had about £100,000 in the bank after paying off a few debts and stuff, you know, I, I, everything came together, um, I guess, and um, I started planning meticulously, the route, studying everything from the, you know, the history of South America to topography and, um, you know, I started training, um, learning how to navigate and, um, you know, I slowly built up until I made the final decision to uh, try to go for this idea. And I thought, well, it would be great if, if I could get a world first and, you know, explore and see South America all in one go. That would be great. You know, and I, I, I feel like I had a, an invisible force sort of pushing me forward. And like I say, everything came together. I guess it's rare that it does for people, but it did for me, it all came together. Um, and I saw the opportunity to do this, and um, I guess uh, my my sort of um, curiosity uh, of the world and um, my my interest to learn, and especially new languages, you know, it all um, felt great to have the opportunity to do this. And um, yeah, I wanted to learn Portuguese and Spanish. I'd never learned another language before. Yeah, so yeah. It sort of came about over a period of, well, several years, five years maybe. You know, from the from the outset of the idea to actually starting was probably seven years maybe. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's uh, that's impressive. It's it sounds like essentially you are self-taught or self-learned um, doing all this. You know, you're you're going on some of these tracks to get a feel for it, but. And picking things up as you go, but it's very much at your own pace and realizing your limits and pushing yourself as well. It's been a big learning curve, you know, on the side of it. You know, I being in working outside, I never really worked in an office, and I had to learn from scratch how to build a website with the help of others. And you know, even the technical side of it was a big learning curve for me. The internet has helped my education and training, um, you know, and the information to do this probably wouldn't be possible at all 20, 30 years ago. You know, the information is all there. Uh, so yes, um, you can learn so much from the, from the internet now. Um, it's open doors for people to learn and educate themselves where, you know, if they haven't got money for um, to study, it is possible. <laughs> to educate and learn things it's changed the world the internet and i think it did definitely help without a doubt um, um to achieve this and this is where i realized that my equipment was not recording which was quite unfortunate given that pete was just about to describe the earliest part of his journey fortunately i was taking notes and can fill you in a bit Pete began his journey on December 4th, 2015, on the island of Marajal. The island is at the mouth of the Amazon River, and given that fact, Pete decided to begin his trek from the middle of the island. I asked Pete how he managed to traverse the terrain, 
given the fact that the Amazon River swells, floods, and changes course. To that, Pete said he stayed as close as possible to the main river, knowing that it was his guide to its source. However, in Pete's words, it all took meticulous planning. He studied the topography extensively to determine a viable path, though that sometimes changed. But perhaps in a sign of the times, Pete relied on digital maps instead of any paper ones, and they served him well. We'll now jump back into the end of Pete's answer. So um, I had to wait. Yes, that's that's another reason why it took so long. I didn't want to use a boat to advance. I couldn't swim. It was just impossible. And the, the guy, none of the walking companions, I like to call them, um, local people, um, you know, just would not go with me. So I started to realise this is going to take longer if I if I want to achieve this and traverse you know, every, every, the whole route purely by my own physical manpower, you know, without advancing with a motor or boats or cars or anything. So it became like a game, you know? Yeah. All, all sort of like every, every little step is its own sort of challenge yes. and every river is uh, another puzzle to solve. Every section was uh, planned in advance. You talked about the terrain a bit. What about some of the floral and, and fauna that you came across? Any concerns about um, certain animals? Or, or in fact, you know, humans? I imagine you came across, you know, there's a lot of, you know, the media likes to say uncontacted tribes. Of course, that's not always, that's not really true. But there's a lot of uh, native tribes in the Amazon. And how did you... Did you ha- come into contact with anyone or conflict with anyone? Were you concerned about that as you journeyed on? Well, obviously, um, walking near to the, the main river channel, you don't get any uncontacted tribes. They're further inland, which wasn't on my route. Um, so most of the time, most of the people have had contact, well, practically all the time along the Amazon River and the connecting tributaries that I followed. Um, yeah, most of the time, in fact, all of the time, most of them had, let me rephrase that, edit. <laughs> most of the time, uh, they've had outside contacts. Some of the remote villages that are passed further inland to avoid the floods, you know, they, they've had um, outside contact, yes. So as far as people goes, the only place where I would say was a little bit dodgy was when I went inland and followed a tributary which runs sort of parallel to the main channel, the Rio Tapichi. I encountered um, Kapanawa people. Um, they had outside contacts, but further, not so far beyond their village, literally um, probably less than 100 kilometers, apparently they're uncontacted tribes. So um, that was the most remote I went, and um, they did have a bit of fear of me. Um, they, they called me a pelacara, which is um, some sort of mythological um, person that lives, gringos that live in the jungle, uh, rob their internal organs and murder people. So that was, I had to sort of explain, guide, you know, 
make them feel better. I wasn't here for that, and I explained my mission. Some of the older people were uh, very cautious of me. People. The younger people, um, more relaxed. Um, yeah, so on the Ria Tapichi, the Kapanao people, uh, especially in the village of Limun Kocha, which is quite remote and close to the Val de Gavari and the border of Brazil, that was the most distance I went from the river, the main river. Yeah, that area was a little bit, um, yes, quite remote and they didn't have many outside communications there. So their old myths and beliefs were still ingrained into the older people there, you know. So I understand um, from the history of the colonialism and what happened there, I understand their fear. So, um, yes, um, animals. Um, yeah, snakes were my main concern. Yeah, um, that was the biggest risk, I think. And across Brazil, I didn't carry any antivenom. I couldn't find any. And um, so that was a big risk. Some of the jungle terrain was so dense. It was literally a lottery if you trod on one. It would bite you. Most of the time, I believe they move out your way when, when you're uh, walking, you know. Most animals do. They only attack in defense. Um, so it was a bit of a lottery. I did tread on one pit viper when I was crossing a river. Um, a, a young pit viper, I trod on its tail and it, it struck and just caught my trousers. And then I, I managed to flick it with my machete into the river. We were crossing a river uh, along a fallen tree and I didn't see it sunning itself um, on the that was the closest I guess I came to being bitten. But uh, yeah, that was that was the main concern as far as dangerous animals go. Um, yeah, jaguars. I felt people warned warned me. You know, jaguars will eat you and attack you. But um, as I progressed, I sort of realised, you know, they move away if they hear humans. They're frightened of you, and they don't. You know, they're, they're fearful of humans in the campsites as well, so I became more relaxed about that uh, threat. <laughs> I learned quite a lot. In the villages, you know, everyone says, you know, you're going to die, you're going to get in, you're going to get bitten by a snake, or, you know, whatever else, anacondas. Um, yeah, so, you know, as, when I started, I was pretty, pretty nervous every time we entered the jungle. And it was sort of in the forefront of my mind that this could possibly happen, especially when I didn't carry any antivenom. So um, I, I planned for, you know, what to do, escape routes and stuff. And we carried inflatable pack rafts for emergency escapes. So, um, yeah, um, I guess I was very lucky. <laughs> yeah. Lucky. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it, uh, you know, with the snakes and also... Um, sounds like with some of the some of the people as well. I'm sure we're only a couple of weeks removed. About and and forgive me, but I forget his identity. The um, UK journalist. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was in the, actually in the same exact same area um, for a couple of weeks. So yeah, um, I was in Atadaladenov on my own looking for um, an indigenous guide or person to trek and cross the border, the Rio Yavari. And I was going up and down river, meeting some of the villages. And I met quite a few 
um, remote indigenous people in Atalaya, the north, they, some, they sometimes come down river to buy goods, you know. It's a very interesting place. <laughs> Most of them talk Sp uh, Spanish and Portuguese, yeah. their, own, their own sort of language. But yes, um, it was risky even being there. I was told it's dangerous. So. Well, I had a little room with no lock on the door at night. <laughs> So I was a little bit nervous, you know, but once people understand my mission, I think, you know, they leave you alone. I wasn't there to sort of, I wasn't a journalist, you know, and the word gets around quick in a small town. So I felt, um, I felt okay after a, after a few days. But yes, I was in that same area and uh, the, um, yeah, the, the, the sort of mixed race people are in conflict with the indigenous because the indigenous people have more rights as far as hunting goes trying to protect their land uh, and the, the, the slowly encroaching you know they're just normal people who most of them need you know need money to live and they they are going further inland getting closer to the indigenous people who who live there uncontacted i guess and Obviously, people control um, the big business there, um, pretty nasty people, I guess, and they don't care about what happens to the uncontacted people. And the, um, the news, obviously, with, um, about the Bolsonaro's relaxation of the protection of the indigenous people in Brazil, which was started by um, a guy well, 100 years ago now, this, this protection agency for the indigenous people. Yeah, so um, the fact that they've slackened the, the regulations and um, cut back on their financial support, I guess this is causing more problems there. It's just the Bolsonaro government was just starting when I was in that area. Um, I, did, I did meet people from Funai as well, and I was trying to get documents <laughs> from Funai, which was impossible. Um, I wasn't an anthropologist or anything. They, they, um, they literally they blanked me, so I just had to had to um, push it on. Hopefully, no issues with them. Yeah, I'm diverting from your original. No, I mean, that's uh, that's a very good point. I've certainly, it's not, not in the Andes where I mostly focus on, but again, you know, yes. the Amazon was very much part of the Inca Empire, and we'll get to the Inca in... in a short time here um so yeah I, I keep up to date in terms of the native relations with some of the south american governments and uh the back and forth that it goes i shouldn't say back and forth it mostly goes one way unfortunately let's you know, let's get back to your trek um another obstacle you faced and we talked about this before we started here was obviously covid so tell me about your experience with that. How did you, again, you're, this is during your track that COVID is spreading around the world. How did you come to learn of it? And I guess, how did it affect your journey? Yeah, uh, right. My, a couple of my blogs sort of go into detail about what happened. Um, on the website, I forgot the name of the blogs now, <laughs> but basically, um, I was heading towards Pocalpa, but following a tributary river called the Tapichi, where I encountered the Kapanawa people. Um, I was advised to go inland because it was impossible next to the river. 
it was bad advice. I should have gone near to the river, really. This is this really um, was a mistake for me to do this, I believe. Looking back, but um, yeah, I got quite advanced on the Rio Tapichi. Very difficult to traverse. Unbelievably difficult. Um, I got up to the point where I was going to cross over to um, cross the mountains and jungle to get to Pocalpa, which is a big city on the other bank of the of the river, which was a big sort of uh, a big point on my trek to arrive there. But um, the guide I hired, he was a chief, and he'd lived and worked in the jungle all his life. I thought he was a great person to walk with. Um, we were about to cross, start the crossing, probably a two-week crossing, and um, a huge storm started, you know, and we delayed for a day and stayed in our hammocks and just weathered the storm. And um, the next day, he, he told me that he doesn't want to cross with me. Despite his huge knowledge of the, the jungle, um, he'd already walked um, two days with me uh, to the point where I wanted to leave the Tapichi River and cross. And yeah, he decided he didn't want to do it. So I said, okay, no problem. We'll get you back to your village um, and I'll look for somebody else. <laughs> so we got a boat back down river and we didn't walk, obviously, <laughs> because I'd already, I'd, I'd already traversed and tracked my route. Uh, um, and we got back to the village. And it all happened in a couple of days, quite a quite eventful few days. Um, I stayed there for two days in the village looking for another guide. Um, and, well, one of his friends got bitten by a poisonous snake. It all happened the same day. And I, um, yeah, and I, they didn't have any medical facilities there. And I, I remember passing a medical facility um, a few weeks earlier. So I, I offered to pay for the petrol to get get his friend and his friend's parents and his family up to the medical down river to the medical place. Um, to cut a long story short, um, really lucky. I was carrying anti venom. This is in Peru, obviously. I was carrying anti venom at the time. I had the right anti venom. The doctor in the medical facility didn't have this, so they used my anti venom to save his life. Um, and then we. We left him there with his mother and sister. We came back up river to the Limoncocha, uh, Capanao village. And uh, um, this is where I heard about the lockdowns and COVID. Actually, COVID itself I'd never heard of before. They had a little box TV in the, one of the huts, little open plan houses. They don't have walls there. Capanao people don't have walls. Um, yeah, and um, yeah, I saw the news and... Um, it was about the COVID spread and the potential lockdowns that were going to happen in Peru. <laughs> I've heard about it. Quite an eventful day, yes. And uh, so I stayed there another night and then I decided to go back down river to where I'd stored some spare kit and I had some cash. Um, this is where it all went pear-shaped for the expedition. Um, I knew some people there already who were looking after my spare kit. It was another Capanao community. But there was a bigger town nearby called Santa Elena, and the shop owners stored my kit for me and other stuff. And um, they offered to let me stay at their farmhouse um, downriver, four kilometers downriver. 
you know, to weather the COVID storm. Nobody knew, nobody knew how long it was going to be. And I had issues with the police. There was a police presence in the, the village as well. You know, they were telling me I need to go to Lima and um, get out. I decided to take up their offer, <laughs> and they took me down by little Peggy Peggy to their farmhouse. And little did I know that I'll be there for seven months. <laughs> I was lucky. I think looking back, it was very lucky where I, where I was at the time. Um, you know, I was very lucky. Um, they had chakras with all the food you need, platano, bananas, uh, yuca, cassava, and various other food. So um, it worked out. I guess that's another element of luck. I'm trying to think positive about the overall experience. But that was, looking back, that was lucky. Um, but I ended up there, and I ended up working with the indigenous people in the chakras. You know? But that was quite an experience, uh, being able to work and live with them for that long of a time. Yeah, I wasn't actually living, living with them. There was a village upriver, um, two kilometers, and one could then worked for a guy who owned the farm, who lived in the, the sort of bigger sort of the bigger sort of village, and uh, so I, I we. First of all, I would say it was pretty nerve-wracking in this open, planned farmhouse, practically on the bank of the river where lots of the villagers passed up and down, you know, and I was a little bit, had a few nightmares, <laughs> the first few nights thinking I was going to get um, shot or something, you know, because they were worried, word got around the green, gringos here and he's bringing COVID into the village, you know, and... Um, you know, so they, they, were, they had a fear of me, a few of them, you know, so that, that was an issue. But after a while, they got to know me and, you know, they relaxed. There's sort of that um, myth, not necessarily, you know, South America, just any anywhere in the world, you know, you have a small village or town and a stranger comes into town or passes through and all of a sudden bad things happen. Well, who are they going to sort of blame, you know, you know, they... What's their motive? Right. Obviously, the COVID, the COVID epidemic on top. They were panicking. You know, they they had a vigilante team with shotguns and bows and arrows, and they were blocking the rivers for people coming up river. And um, some of the villagers couldn't get back. You know, they sent the boats back down with, um, to the main, the, the mouth of the Tapichi and. Uh, a lot of people got stuck in the towns, the big town of Rekena, which is at the mouth of the Riata Pichi. So yes, yeah, as I said, it was um, initially the first few weeks were pretty, pretty scary. Yeah, I I imagine you have this unknown disease going, uh, spreading around the world. You know, we don't know the full capabilities of it at that time. And then on top of that, the... The fear of the unknown, you know, you're in a remote village in the Amazon, they don't know you, you don't know them that well. Yeah, it's, I understand where it could get very unsettling. Yeah, I was on my own completely and there was no outside communications apart from my satellite. It was uh, uncomfortable for the first few weeks. Well, obviously, I'm glad it all turned turned out well. Obviously, it did. So, you know, you, you stay seven months there, you get back on on your journey, what was that like, you know, leaving uh, the farmhouse, leaving that village and being able to, you know, essentially restart the expedition 
and onward towards the source of the Amazon. Yes, it was. Uh, I was so relieved to sort of um, get back on on the track. You know, I had so much misinformation from the villages about it's still locked down. You can't go anywhere. You know, they didn't have the full picture of what was going on in Peru. So I had to send a lot of satellite messages just to confirm with people. Um, and then I realised it was, you know, I'm just going to go. It's time to go. And um, very fortunately for me. Um, one of the Kapanao people I became friends with um, offered to cross to Pacaba with me, um, which was great, and he helped me a lot. So um, I'm indebted to Pizarro, that's his Spanish name, he has a Kapanao on it, um, the guy who offered to cross with me. Um, I was going to cross on my own, but I thought, you know, um, if I come across any more remote villages and I'm on my own, it's a problem, it's going to, especially with COVID. So I, I, I decided to... Um, hire this guy with me. I had, I had a spare kit already from the previous guy, so, you know, he's getting all the kits of Pacalpa as well, everything, all my possessions. Um, yeah, so it worked out pretty well, and my decision to traverse the Capici has made a big <laughs> impact on the expedition. You know, this will probably make for a good few chapters in the book, I guess. Yes. So speak more about, you know, what, what is the point of the Andes that you're trying to get to? What is the source of the Amazon that you're, you're seeking and sort of, you know, okay. uh, how long, I guess, did it take for you to, to get there? From what point? From the start? Ooh, that's a great question. Cause I know, you know, obviously COVID delayed your, your trek there. So, how, however you want to measure it, from, from the start or from um, excluding COVID, your COVID delay, per, perhaps? I don't know if you um, know that math off the top of your head exactly, but um, I guess what, what was the date that you made it to the top? Right. Okay. As far as the source of the Amazon goes, when I was planning this trek originally, when I started planning probably 10 years ago now, or maybe a bit longer, the official recognized, international recognized source of the Amazon was Nevado Mismi on, um, in the mountains in Arequipa, which is the source that I, I, I planned to go to. As I started the journey, or a few months before, news came about of a new, this most distant source on the Rio Mantero. And um, there's conflicts even now. <laughs> as to what is the official source. So there are sort of three sources of the Amazon, each with varying um, um, lengths or volume of water or most distant source um, without interruption. And I, I, I decided to keep to my original plan despite people, other people <laughs> suggesting I go to the Mantero route, which is the most distant of interrupted flow. There's a dam on that, on that river, up high up, and it temporarily is seasonal, um, diverts the water, so it can continuously flow from the source, the, to the sea, sorry, from the source, only so many months a year. Um, so I decided to stick to my original plan, because I thought it would be much more interesting, um, with the, you know, passing the Inca civilizations, um, story and, 
Plus, it was my original route, and I planned it meticulously. And I decided to stick to the source, which is now considered to be the most distant source of continuous flow. Um, is Mismi. Lots of people still believe it's the past as the official source. It was done for quite a few decades until 2014. So, uh, yeah, um, Nevada Mismi is one source. Uh, the other one is uh, uh, on the um, top of the Rio, where the Rio Montero um, is born in the mountains, which is the most distant and the most um, Volume of discharge is the the other. Oh, I've forgotten the name now. I should know this. This is embarrassing. Um, Mantero. I mean, Mantero is yes, the Rio Mantero. is one of the sources of the most volume, the most discharge of water. Rio Marignon is the Rio Mantero, which is now the most distant source where a drop of water flow to the mouth in the bottom is is the highest point and the most distant source with continuous flow. Uh, so yes, uh, I guess um, I would look at it overall as my start point in uh, uh, the mouth of the Amazon. Was six, six years and five months and twelve days, I think. Better check that facts on my website. Um, but um, obviously, I was happy to get to Cusco. Um, I didn't actually walk all the way to Cusco. I stopped on the main river of the um, Potomac in a, a mountain village and decided to visit Cusco for a few days, then go back. Um, then after, I visited Machu Picchu and sort of reinvigorated my kit and did a few interviews. And I planned to go back, but I got COVID, as you probably know. I got really sick in Cusco. Not a bad place to be sick, so. But um, I was going to heal, and um, I, I delayed the restart. Um, I had antibiotics, I couldn't breathe, I couldn't even climb up the stairs in the main plaza without collapsing, coughing. Uh, I was pretty bad, and I thought this was the end of the expedition. It was a few months after Cusco that I arrived at this, the source of the Amazon. Uh, the, Source of the most distant flow from the Vibra Mismi. I decided to climb to the top, even though the, the official source is um, in the rock face, quite a, a couple of hundred meters below. I decided to summit, you know, so um, to cover all my all my um, bases and say that I've sourced, I've gone to the highest point as well. So that, that was that was always in my plan to do that. When I was in Cusco in the Andes, I was what I thought to be my top physical peak in terms of running ability. And I would run for you know 10 minutes. My lungs would be on fire there uh, just because of the elevation. I'm, I'm in Michigan. There's no elevation where I'm at. Um, but you've sort of built it up through your um, trek up the Amazon and getting to those higher elevations as you started to climb there. But even after COVID, uh, after you fully recovered from COVID, did you have trouble uh, getting back into the swing of things and um, making that climb? Yes, definitely. Without a doubt, it was a huge um, setback on my sort of strength, physical, my, my lungs, my heart. 
it really affected. <clears throat> I had to see a cardiologist to get my heart checked over and stuff. Um, yes, um, yeah, when I got to the point where I decided to go to Cusco, I felt really strong, you know, and I thought, great, you know, um, I'm improving my my uh, physical strength and my, my body's adapting to the altitude. And uh, when I got COVID, you know, at altitude, in a freezing cold, cheap hostel room, uh, it really took its toll on my, my strength and my lungs. I had um, the upper part of my lungs was very badly infected. Uh, so, yeah, it took a long time to get back. And what happened was, initially, I decided probably too soon to go back to continue. And I went back to the point, it's about 3,000 metres, I think, um, a little village where I stopped and the people said, hi, where have you been? We were expecting you <laughs> quite a while ago. Um, I felt it affecting me then, even then. I really struggled just walking on the flat ground. But I was really determined that I pushed on for a week on my own. Um, and um, I really, really struggled. Um, and I knew that it was the after effects of, I think it was probably Omicron that I had. Um, uh, yeah, so I decided I just couldn't go on. I got a bus back to Cusco again from um, a town that I was walking past on the main Potomac River uh, just to recuperate a bit more and get myself checked over and so I came back for um, another almost two weeks I think and I was tr sort of running, walking up and down the stairs and walking everywhere and trying to get my feet in well and trying to get my strength back which did help a bit it really did help those few few um, that week or so that I came back to recuperate and I got back on track and yes it took time it took time to recuperate and I think it was probably two months after I initially contracted this that I felt my strength was back to where it was before. Um, and I, I, literally two months. Um, and I actually went, I'm still training a little bit just, to, just in case I get to do the Mantera. Um, I went running yesterday as well and I felt fine. So um, I'm trying to keep fit in case of uh, any other opportunities come up. Um, yeah, so I feel... I feel as if, um, you know, I'm back down at sea level, you know, I feel normal. But the first time I got to Cusco, before I got sick, I did feel pretty, um, it did affect me, the altitude, yeah. So it takes months, from my from my perspective, <laughs> I'm not sure about other people, anybody's um, physical ability, you know. I'm sure it, sure it varies uh, depending on the person, definitely. Um, so like you said, you're in Cusco right now. And you're on a History of the Inca podcast. And so here comes some Inca-related questions. What was your knowledge of the Inca and pre-Inca societies prior to starting your journey? Um, yeah, obviously it wasn't um, in the history lessons at school. Uh, I only gathered things from you know, television. My knowledge was very, very basic, I must admit. Um, I knew about the Machu Picchu and um, the, um, you know, the Spanish uh, getting here and sort of uh, overtaking their, their um, civilization, you know. Very basic knowledge. Of, but I was aware of the amazing construction techniques. Um, and, yeah, it was very basic knowledge before I started. I must admit, I'm ashamed to say, I didn't really know too much. 
about the history of the Inca civilization. Um, and I'm still learning. <laughs> you know, obviously there's so much interesting um, history here in, in this part of the world. Um, yeah, it was very basic knowledge of the Incas. Everyone knew, uh, obviously the sacrifices they made, that was the basic, you know, the general public. Oh, they used to sacrifice people and they built Machu Picchu. I'm aware of all the vast um, archaeological sites that are sprawled across the, the mountains here, you know. I sort of saw it firsthand. Yeah, what I'm um, sure you probably don't know or weren't told some of the names of the sites that you saw, but any that stuck out to you in particular in terms of name or, or quality? You know, you work in construction and, and landscaping. You know, how did you find their construction capabilities and were you impressed by what they were able to accomplish with their construction and working with the landscape? I'm pretty stunned, especially when I got to Cusco. The first thing I did was walk to look at the stonework on the, the palace walls, you know. And uh, it's like the Egyptian pyramids. How the hell? You know, I've, I've done stonework and dry stone walling and bricklaying and stuff. And you look at that and the joints on the intersecting, intersecting stones. How the, how did they do this? Um, incredible, without, you know, without. Um, Obviously, a mathematic of some sort, I guess. But um, it was a lot of patience, I guess, and hard work uh, to do this. And um, I think, I'm not sure, but it's not been scientifically explained that their method of creating this dry stone um, walls of the palace. Yeah, that, that was impressive, and it still boggles my mind, you know, <laughs> how they did this. And also, the, the Inca terracing. Come across so many terraces, you know, the, the meticulous um, agricultural terrace walls on the mountains are incredible, you know, uh, uh, mesmerizing. <laughs> the, engineer, inge the engineering is uh, pretty, uh, very impressive, and um, it still fascinates me that does obviously people who study the Incas um, and their, their methods of building. And um, yeah, I've, I've fortunately. I got a friend, a uh, property developer, uh, paid for me to visit Machu Picchu. He insisted I go. So I was very fortunate that I got a friend in the UK who all expenses paid a trip to Machu Picchu when I was first arrived in Cusco. And there again, obviously, you know, I was stood looking at the, the stonework, whereas many people would look at the overall, overall um, site, many tourists don't really think probably as deeply as I do about how they, you know, construct these incredible buildings high as well and how they carve these rocks you know it, uh, it, it, it was mesmerizing and interesting and i'm still curious so um i may try to go back to Machu Picchu while i'm still here if i if i can afford it <laughs> for me fascinating being in the construction industry um, you know to see this firsthand right close up you know yeah yeah, I, I agree. Cusco is, you know, you get bits and pieces of the walls here and there. You know, obviously a lot of it was um, used or deconstructed uh, for Spanish colonial architecture, but some still remains. I, I'm assuming you've been to Saxoban already? Well, I, have not, I have not been there, no. Obviously, um, 
from a tourist uh, perspective, I just didn't have, couldn't afford to do any side trips. So I haven't really visited anywhere apart from Machu Picchu. But the people here in this house took me in their car to um, a place called UK, archaeological site there, which was uh, very interesting. Uh, a palace, I think they have a palace there. Uh, yes, last Sunday we went there, and that was really interesting. And the guy uh, is Polish here, and he, we filmed for Polish television. Um, he filmed, um, he was speaking for Polish television, they were going to broadcast about this place. Yeah, I, I visited a few sites, and um, now that I'm stuck here, I'm determined to, to see a few more. And the cultural... Um, Minister of Culture here is, I think they want me to give a presentation. So try to, if I do this, I'm going to try to um, persuade them to let me visit a few sites at their expense. But you never know. I, I understand. And yeah, there's a lot to see in and around Cusco. But Sexuaman is the large uh, sort of fortification temple area that just sits yes. um, right above the city of Cusco. You could probably. Yes. You could walk up there. No, I'll, I'll make a point of doing that. You know, I mean, I can afford the taxi fare. I guess that's that's closer. Yeah, that's not too bad. I can probably afford to do this. Now that you've, you've mentioned it, I must admit I do want to go there, and I will make a point of doing so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just um, knowing your interest in architecture, and we've already talked about the the blocks and in the city of Cusco itself and Machu Picchu, but. When you get to Sexoman, these blocks are. I'm six three, six four, and these blocks are huge. I'm tiny compared to these things. So yes, yes. And how how did they do this? You know, I mean, I don't know. Um, so obviously, people have conclusions and ideas, but yeah, I would like to go and see this firsthand. Be mesmerized again by the in, um, Inca constructions. Yes, definitely. Without a doubt, I'm going there now. You mentioned several times you've had various guides on your journey. What information or, or sort of stories did they provide you about some of what you saw in terms of Inca sites along your along your way? Right. Well, um, it's a good question. But when I got to Pichari in on the Rio uh, Apurimac. My Ashanika guide, I had to send home. I didn't have any more money to pay him. So I literally crossed the whole of the Andes on my own, purely on my own. So I didn't have guides with me. So obviously I saw sites and um, I, as I passed, I went to, I, I passed one site. It was very impressive. I forgot the name. It's right on the uh, Puramac River. They call it the second Machu Picchu. Not having a guide with me, um, obviously, or a, a walking companion <laughs> um, yeah I didn't really see too much or have too much knowledge about what I was seeing you know it was only when I got to a town called Andagua and I decided to cross over the mountain rather than go round um, I was advised to get a guide for security as well as um, you know for a company and for knowing the roots of the pre-Inca trails over the mountain. So I hired, a, hired someone, yeah, he was a professional guide. Uh, Bendis, his name was very good. And he suggested we hire a mule and um, a Quechua guide. They were both Quechua. 
to, to accompany us and carry food and the tents and stuff and all the heavy stuff on the on the mule. I still carried my backpack, but yeah, that was great. I, I really enjoyed. I didn't enjoy the trek much on my own, but this was nice to have this. You know, a week of. Um, uh, it was a week with one professional guide, mountain guide, um, Brendisi, and then uh, two days, I think two or three days with the mule and the, the old Quechua guy, very, very knowledgeable, um, you know, uh, who lived in Andangua next to the volcanic, uh, the two volcanoes overlook Andangua, I don't know if you know this area. Really interesting, lots of, we passed so many, um, archaeological, you know, so many sort of abandoned sites with constructions um, and they're not protected uh, um, but the guy was telling me names and the history and, you know, the old guy knew a lot. So yeah, that was an interesting part of the trek as far as the walk, you know, as far as knowledge as knowledge goes, as um, I was very limited and uh, he filled me in a few gaps of amazing information and history so yeah, that was good. I found that uh, the site you're referring to, Choke Kirao, overlooking the Purimac. Yeah, I, I believe that's the one you're talking about. Yes, that was on my that was unplanned. That was on my route. I didn't realize it was on my planned route. I just came across it by accident. Um, and yeah, it was very interesting. Yes. Um, also, another place I I think I blogged about this. I wasn't aware. Um, it was on my route again. I wasn't planning my route around any archaeological sites it just happened to come across them one thing i found when i was in peru everyone was very friendly and hospitable to me when i was there i'm, I'm assuming you've had a pretty similar experience overall yeah overall um yes so especially in peru yeah i would say the and in the mountains the village mountains and the quechua people have been very very um hospitable and welcoming and there's no sort of, I don't feel any sort of sense of racism or um, prejudice against gringos, you know? Um, yeah, very friendly, especially in the mountains, the Quechua people, yeah. Um, obviously, um, when I was traversing in Peru um, and Brazil, some of the indigenous people are very protective, understandably, from the history. But once they got to know my guide, or the people I was walking with, the guides, I call them, yeah, I guess the guides, um, explained my mission in advance of my arrival. It helped a lot, definitely, without a doubt. Um, they're still suspicious, you know, especially the Asianica, some of the remote villages. Apparently, I, I entered um, one or two villages that no, they said, no, you're the first gringo ever to enter our village you know very that's what they told me um, um and that's what my guy told me luckily you know i'd spent weeks and weeks and weeks with meetings with the um organizations that oversee the Ashanika people getting documents took me weeks and weeks to get the right documents but fortunately you know i got all the right documents and i showed them the documents once i showed them this you know um they were fine and the, the hospitality was good. Obviously, you know, if any strange gringo was to tramp through their villages without any permission or documents or, or on their own or with other gringos, yeah, they would have issues. They'd be as friendly. Yes. So, yeah. Yes, I must 
must admit, once they, you know, especially the indigenous people, once they got to know my mission, things were okay. And especially the, hosp the hospitality of the Quechua in the mountains was great. And I was walking on my own now. So, you know, I was on my own. Um, yeah, especially the young people were more relaxed. The older Quechua people are very traditional in their, their old, you know, they don't speak much English, but the, the younger people bridge that gap with me, you know, the, the children of the older people and the, the um, yeah, and global communication and satellite television. In some places, you know, it opens their mind and they're more, they're more relaxed about. They know the word adventure and tourism. So, yeah, um, I was yeah quite surprised about how friendly the especially the Quechua people were in the village, mountain villages, gringo arriving on his own. <laughs> I always got offered a, a room or something. I I paid them something for make, making the food in the room just to just to smooth things over, just to help them out a bit, you know. So I was happy to pay something. Going, uh, I guess, a little bit to the landscape, you know, you, you traversed the, the Amazon, so you've been through rainforests and jungles, you climbed the Andes. In the podcast, one of the earlier episodes I did was sort of an overview of the landscape and how extreme it is. It, you can go to different ecological zones quite quickly just because the elevation changes. What was your experience like with uh, seeing sort of the landscape around you change so suddenly as not as you're now sort of descending or, or traversing the Andes and making your way to the Pacific? Yeah, I mean, overall, um, I did underestimate the difficulty of the traverse, you know. <clears throat> I really did. I guess I didn't like to think about it too much because I wouldn't have started, I guess. Especially in the jungle, the jungles were really at times incredibly difficult, you know, incredibly difficult to traverse, you know, what the hell am I doing here? This sort of crossed my mind many times. Um, yeah, the terrain has been so varied. Obviously, it was nice to start climbing out of the Amazon basin and not worrying about crossing flooded forests, you know, that was really nice points of the expedition to arrive at and start climbing, <laughs> you know. Uh, um, yeah, so the terrain was great, beautiful. The cloud mountains, forested mountains, when I first started to climb, um, slowly, you know, up and down, round and round, various tracks and roads. Um, yeah, I don't know if you've seen some of the, my blog before Christmas, some of the stunning photographs I got. Cloud forest mountains, you know, the green. The, it was obviously rainy season and everything's more green. But yeah, the contrast between that point and the point where I started to descend to the Pacific was completely different. Bone dry, um, desert, like you say, virtually deserts on the mountains. And in between, down by the river, um, and the Maze, Maze Valley, I don't know how you pronounce this, was stunning contrast. The green um, landscape, total contrast to the bone dry, arid, mountains that never see rain most of the time was really yeah the mountains have been quite quite different in different areas the terrain it was surprised me um i've seen it on all seasons now as well so yeah it's been uh, amazing i've I, I couldn't stop but i kept stopping to take photographs and uh i had a drone with me on the last um month or so i carried a drone that somebody sent out to me so that was great 
and I got learned to use that and got some good drone shots. And yeah, I I was stunned. It was stunning landscape, and I was mesmerised by some of the landscapes I came across. It's hard to convey in photographs, you know. You know, you need to really be there and see it with um, sort of uh, depth of field, double vision. You know, I think um, you know you need a 3D television really now. You know, sort of a virtue. Somebody needs to make a documentary in 3D so you can immerse yourself in this part of the world and really try to experience it. It's, obviously, it's never as good as seeing it firsthand with your own eyes. It never will be, I guess. You know, you got the aromas of the forests and the mountains, the the, the air, the very cold air, and up up on top. It all goes to sort of. Uh, I've seen some of the pictures you've posted on Twitter and your blog, and yeah, they are pretty spectacular. And you get those those valleys, those deep valleys where the warm air sort of gets trapped or something, and you get a little water in there. It's pretty tropical, and then only you know a mile or two or, or several kilometers. Um, Distance-wise, it could be a completely different terrain, and, and the landscape could completely change. Exactly. Yes, I remember the first time I, I climbed from the Rio Apodomac up um, two and a half thousand meters in eight hours, and uh, I camped in my tent. You know, just a t-shirt laying on top of my ham, uh, my sleeping bag. Um, and then in the morning, I climbed up. Well, it took me all day. Uh, two and a half thousand and uh, I was freezing and it was a real shock to my system <laughs> the first time I felt cold since I left the UK uh, so that was two times I did a quite high climbs in one day um, well the second time wasn't in one day it, it was over a period of um, three days I think the three and a half thousand climb but yeah the, the, the contrast in temperature was pretty surprising <laughs> and obviously nothing grows at high altitude just get moss and cactus that's all you get I think above certain height then the alpacas how they live up there I do not know you know they, they sleep standing up with their heads up I can't I, I was surprised about this as well you know I, I stayed on a few um, near to Mizmi I stayed on a few a few nights with a few people very remote who just purely look after the alpacas on their farms you know one or two people on their own and um I got up a few times during the night to look at the, the uh, night sky because I'm curious and uh, the alpacas sleep sort of with, sitting up with their heads upright you know it's strange to see <laughs> I don't know if you've seen that um, but they, no and they look over at you you know in, in the middle of the night guys uh, they're sitting they, they sort of curl their legs up underneath their body but they're upright and that's how they stay all night and I, I thought in that freezing cold their fur must be incredible, you know, to keep them warm. So, yeah, a lot of new experiences. <laughs> yes. So you're realizing as you approach the Pacific, you know, your your journey of six-plus years is coming to an end. And uh, you posted a live video uh, as you were approaching the Pacific. And, you know, just the, the updates and the tweets, I believe it was the 25th of June this year, 
What uh was going through your head as you were, you know, essentially your journey across the South America is concluding? Yeah, um, it was a bit strange, you know. Um, obviously, I was barely emotional a little bit. I had to be brought tears to my eyes. You know, I couldn't hold back the emotions. Especially, you know, my father just died as well, so it all sort of mixed emotions. Um, but yeah, mainly, uh, I guess, uh, you know, a relief I don't have to plan ahead and route plan anymore. You know, a lot of things were going through my head, but it was nice, a really nice day. I didn't rush it, and I had some company uh, from a few people who wanted to walk with me to the finish. I didn't um, contact the media. <laughs> I didn't want all the cameras to be there, and you know, I, I, I was a bit worried about my my overstay in Peru, and I didn't want to draw attention to myself. So and, um, it was quite a quiet finish, but it was great. It was good, and I was really happy to get there and relieved and thoughts, you know, you know, I've done it, I've made it across without being having any injuries at all, which was pretty spectacular. <laughs> you know, you know, the amount of terrain I've crossed, I could have broken my legs several times. And I was so relieved that, you know, I've arrived and it was really great to see the sea again, you know, and smell the ocean. So uh, it was very emotional. <laughs> and, um, yeah, it was strange because I must admit, that a few days following, um, my mind must be still in expedition mode because I, I passed a few shops in Arequipa and I went in looking for bits of kit that would replace my kit or benefit me and I thought what am I doing you know it was hard to get out of that sort of this, this psychology of um, you know expedition mode uh, I was looking for bits of kit to improve my kit and I thought what the hell am I doing I don't need anything anymore <laughs> yeah the last day was great it worked out nicely yeah it looks like it was uh you know you had some musicians there you had a couple people walking with you to the end it was a beautiful looking day to say the least as you yes. made it in there you took a dip in it looked cold, but yeah. it wasn't too bad. Yeah, I, I, the source of the Amazon, the, the mountain, me, I showered under the cold water, and that was that was shockingly cold. <laughs> that was nothing in comparison to that. So yeah, um, yes. The the only thing that was surprised me is I I wasn't aware I should have known this. It was it was a dry season, and it was it's classed as winter here. So. All the beach resorts and bars that were further along, I planned to finish at that point, but they were all deserted. And I was, I had visions of lots of kids and people following me, you know, the last hour or whatever. Um, but I realised before I, I sort of finished on the last day that it was winter season, and all the, I was told that all the bars, and hotels, and restaurants and beaches were empty. So it wasn't quite what I expected. But it was okay. I was, as I said on the blog, you know, I was happy. I, I made it alive, basically, you know, without any major injuries. Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, considering all the terrain and things that you had to face, uh, I think, you know, bar, you know, COVID aside, you made it out pretty, uh, pretty clean. Um, yes. Yeah. Overall, so. I guess, yeah. Yeah, so many things could have gone seriously wrong, you know. Or then I could have given up, which I never in, 
never intended to, no matter what. So, uh, yes, it was it was um, it was great to arrive at my destination. Yes, <laughs> really good. And um, obviously, it'll be with me for the rest of my life. This experience now. So, um, absolutely. Still all sinking in, you know. Despite being three weeks ago tomorrow that I finished, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. Well. You know, it's been a multi-year journey for you. You haven't been home in a while. So what what's what's next? Do you plan on you know going home now and 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 laying low for a little bit, or do you have a thoughts about another uh, journey uh, or trek coming up? Um, well, at the moment, um, yeah, I was trying to get sponsorship to traverse the Mantero to the most distant source, which is about probably two months work with all the planning and preparation and uh, organizing but I haven't got the money to do this um, I need a sponsor <laughs> I really have got no cash at all practically um, but also the other the other thing my father died and um, I'm the executor of his will and so I've got a responsibility to sort of go back and try to sort all these things out you know and he's um, he had a house a small house so um I'm, I need to. I really need to go back. So I guess I will be in Peru until um, maybe first week in August. I don't know. And um, I really don't know. I need money for my airfare as well. I haven't got the money for the airfare. I was. I. I, I probably will borrow from somebody to get back. So um, yeah, I would like to stay in Peru longer. You know, I'm, I, I'm not here legally. My visa, obviously was expired a long time ago and I've got a, a fine to pay um, so I've got that to pay as well but I guess I, I need to get back to the UK just to sort of help my my sister and brother out and stuff with my father's estate small estate that he had I, I'm working on that now so that's another thing I'm doing right now um, yeah obviously uh, if I get the sponsorship to do the Mantero if I could stay here and do that, that would be great. But even if I go back to the UK um, and I get a sponsor, I will probably try to come back and do that as well. I have other other ideas for projects, and obviously, I'm working on starting working on the book. I've been encouraged to write a book. It wasn't really my initial plan, but um, yeah, I've got nothing to lose. I'll try to write a book and uh, carefully and take my time. And I have um, lots of, I think I've got 100 SD cards of video that I've taken over the course of the expedition. So I've got meetings with two companies in, in the UK who want to help me produce a documentary. So uh, there's, there's quite a few things uh, lined up. <laughs> oh, yeah. You, you obviously, uh, a lot has gone on in the past month or, or two. Um, with your personal life and as well as the journey ending and uh, after such a expedition like this you know I imagine people struggle to find the next project to keep them going or motivated so to speak um, but it you know with the videos and the pictures and a book I know I would definitely read something like that so I think you know, after a journey like this, I think you're well deserved to take a little time to soak it all in and obviously take care of uh, what you need to take care of as well. 
I'm going to start wrapping up uh, the interview here. How can people find your blog? I know you partnered with a few charities as well. Um, If you want to plug those and and maybe people can also uh, donate to your fund to help you get back to the UK or um, for your next, uh, next adventure as well. What, where could they go and and find you at? Right. Um, Yeah. My website is still up and running and, the whole, um, I think there's about almost 50 blogs covering the whole expedition. There's a book there, it's free if anybody wants to go through all that. Yeah, it's called um, AscentOfTheAmazon.com. That's the name of my website. Um, and I have a Twitter feed and now an Instagram, which I set up only now after I finished. Crazy, yeah? Yeah, so I will update um, that quite frequently. And I'm, I'm putting up photographs of the overall expedition once a day I'm going to uh, put a photograph and explain the events behind the photograph um, on, on my Twitter account and Instagram so also yes you know um, I hate being out of money I've always worked hard and always worked for myself and um, if it comes to it I'll just have to work here to get the money for my airfare back but there is um, an option for anybody if he wants to make a small donation on my website, there's a PayPal um, link, and on my, um, um, I forget the name of the page now, donations page or support the expedition page. Um, yeah, so, um, also I've, I've offered to make a really nice, a really nice calendar that I'm gonna put together and sign and send out to anybody who donates um, 25 UK pounds or 30 US dollars or above. Um, I've committed to this as well, which I'm working on. A signed, very special, unique calendar. Signed, personally signed by me with all my photographs, all the best photographs. Uh, So yeah, if anybody would like to make a donation, you know, um, they will be um, names on my on my partner's page and in the future book and also they will get a beautiful calendar signed and made by me so um, the, the links are on the website also so um, yeah as I said I have Instagram and Twitter Amazon Amazon Ascent is my Twitter feed and Instagram is I think I've called it Ascent of the Amazon so it's all links up so yeah If anybody's interested in seeing what I've got up to the last six and a half years, it's all on there. (laughs) Well, most of it. Obviously, it's not all on there. I've saved a lot for the book, obviously, but um, the highlights and lowlights are on there, yeah. (laughs) I'll definitely be including a link uh, to those various pages uh, in the description of this episode as well. So rest assured, uh, people... If you go to the uh, description of this episode or this interview, you should be able to find links to those pages. Pete, thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure talking to you. I'm, trust me, I, we could keep going. That's just happened. Uh, you got a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> the longest podcast in history. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, there's so much, yeah. So much to talk about, and it'll be refreshing most of my episodes are are a lot shorter it might be a shock to some of the listeners uh to see an interview this long but it's been very fascinating to to talk with you and i'm sure we'll keep in touch after this as well we certainly will 
Well, thank you for inviting me, Nicholas. Yeah, it's, um, you have the exclusive first ever podcast from me, so and probably snippets of information that nobody knows about. So I um, hope your listeners uh, enjoy listening to my ramblings. And they can probably check over the website while they're listening if they want, so they can have uh, a more in-depth knowledge of my crazy, crazy journey. <laughs> yeah, thanks. It's great to talk to you also. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Pete Casey, audio issues aside. I'd like to thank Pete once again for coming on and answering all of my questions. No doubt we probably could have kept going, but as you can see from the length of this episode, we had to stop at some point. If you would like to support Pete and his current mission to make it home, or if you want to donate to one of the charities he's partnered with, Go to AscentOfTheAmazon.com and navigate to the support page. Again, links are provided in the description of this episode. We will see if Pete is able to make another journey in the future. I hope so, because it certainly brings awareness to the flora, fauna, and people of the Amazon and the Andes. Things that I think we can all agree deserve more attention. That is all for now, everyone. I'm off to continue reading and researching. Look for an update in late August or early September on the return of the English version of the show.